Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online on feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod, and you can send us an email at feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And we're hoping to get this show to you sometime in mid-January 2018 for the first year anniversary of the Trump inauguration. Mm. And for that occasion... We are going to be talking about the Goldwater rule today because Karen just wrote a paper about it. (laughs) And it's also relevant. Yes. And it's also relevant to the first anniversary of Trump being president of the United States. Mm -hmm. And I just read the book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, edited by Brandy Lee. And so we're going to talk about these things and how they're relevant to the Trump presidency. So, Karen, what is the Goldwater rule? So... The Goldwater Rule is a rule in the American Psychiatric Association's Principles of Medical Ethics with annotations especially applicable to psychiatry. And in section 7.3 of this ethical guideline, it states that on occasion, psychiatrists are asked for an opinion about an individual who is in the light of public attention or who has disclosed information about himself slash herself through public media. In such circumstances, a psychiatrist may share with the public his or her expertise about psychiatric issues in general. However, it is unethical for a psychiatrist to offer a professional opinion unless he or she has conducted an examination and has been granted proper authorization for such a statement. So, why is it called the Goldwater Rule? The impetus for this guideline was that in... 1964, Fact Magazine, which was an independent magazine run out of New York by one Mr. Ginsburg, I forget his first name, sorry, and they published an article. The entire front page was just the text that said, Fact, 1,189 psychiatrists say Goldwater is psychologically unfit to be president. So at the time, Barry Goldwater was running for president. And much of the counter movement against his campaign was predicated on the fact that he was not mentally stable and that he was interested in starting nuclear war. He was what would be considered an extreme conservative at the time, probably today would be kind of considered a mainstream conservative. But this issue of Fact magazine included a survey that was sent out by Mr. Ginsburg, and it had less than a 20% response rate. And the majority of respondents stated that they found Goldwater to be psychologically unfit. However, nearly the same number responded either he is fit or that they did not have enough information. The cover, of course, only said this many found him unfit. And the entire issue was a ridiculous number of pages, like 50 pages of blurbs by psychiatrists one way or the other on the issue, responding about the survey itself. It would be considered psychometrically flawed by any empirical standard as a survey. And preceding these responses is a very long article by Mr. Ginsburg himself describing all the horrible things about Barry Goldwater. And so... And, of course, concluding that he was mentally unfit. Following the publication of this, Barry Goldwater sued Fact Magazine in one for libel. And then the ruling was appealed and upheld. So the ruling against 
Mr. Ginsburg. Fact Magazine closed after this. The people found guilty were Mr. Ginsburg alone. The psychiatrists were not found to be liable. There was no lawsuit against them. So it, it's unknown whether they would have been. The ruling was based on the fact that Ginsburg had explicitly wanted to write an article and an issue of his magazine that stated that, he, that uh, Goldwater was unfit even before hearing back from psychiatrists and that it was edited with this in mind. It's unknown out of the blurbs that were published what editing was done, which were how the choice was made to include what. And so it was found to be liable for these reasons, not because it was any, any sort of violation of any ethical standard, because no ethical standard was in place. And so many in the field of psychiatry felt that this was an embarrassment to the profession. Subsequently, the rule was put in place in 1972, quite a ways after this court case and the events that took place that caused it to be put into the guidelines. And so that's specifically the Goldwater rule. There is a corollary for this rule in the American Psychological Association's Ethical Principles of Psychologists and Code of Conduct. And so that one goes into some more explicit detail about when a psychologist can provide an opinion, when a psychologist can do an assessment, and these other things. So that's generally what the rule is. I'm not an expert on the standards of psychiatry, like the ethics standards or guidelines, but I know that for the American Psychological Association's ethical standards, this section is in what's called the enforceable section. There are two sections. One is kind of an aspirational goal of ethics. So we have the goal of justice. We have the goal of beneficence and non-maleficence. More general and less prescriptive, whereas the corollary to the Goldwater rule is enforceable, which means if you break it, you can be subject to review in terms of your membership with the APA. And so how that applies right now is there's a lot of discussion around our current president's mental steps. And some of it is by people who are not in the field of psychology, and some of it is by people who are. And the question is, that seems to arise is, is the Goldwater rule still relevant? In what ways is it relevant? Is it accurate? And basically, why for all of those? So Elizabeth, you have read a book that was kind of specifically in violation of this. Mm -hmm. On purpose, yes. Yeah. And so what's not clear to me about this book in particular is whether these people are APA or APA psychiatric members, because these rules are not legally enforceable. They're professionally enforceable. Correct. Since the height of the election season in 2016, both the American Psychological Association and the American Psychiatric Association put out reminders reminding their members of the Goldwater Rule and that it remained in effect. What happened, there were many professionals during that time that felt like they disagreed. I think the last essay, or the second to last essay, unless you count the afterward by Noam Chomsky, but the one before that in the book was a letter to President Obama, and then they sent it to the Joint Chiefs of Staff and several members of Congress saying that something should be set up to assess 
Trump and then also Pence and anyone who ever runs for president or vice president for any party ever till the end of the time to assess their mental health and to make this kind of part of the enforcement of the 25th Amendment. But they started doing this after the election. Yeah, Karen's making a face. You can't see listeners. So, And it was published in the Huffington Post, and then Gloria Steinem and Robin Morgan jumped on it, and they gave it to a bunch of Congress people and senators that they knew. The thing about this book, and I wrote it, like, if you want to friend me on Goodreads, I think it's at Miss Cherry Pie. What I wrote on my Goodreads review was that it was well-written and well-researched, but it was ethically, politically, and practically, like, nonsense. And it's ethically nonsense for the reasons that Karen's talking about, about why we need the Goldwater rule. We'll get back to that. It's political nonsense. And I hate to say that because I like psychology. It was my major in undergrad. I think it's interesting. I like even today, I sent Karen an article that there's a new psych paper that came out of my undergrad school's department of psychology. And I was like, yay, go team. You know, it's cool to see science being done from like where I used to go to school. And I like psychology. I like all kinds of science, but it's something I know a little bit about. You know, little, little knowledge is a dangerous thing, but it's hard for me to see psychologists know a lot about psychology, know absolutely nothing about politics. It's almost as if they can't see how this is going to create backlash. It's almost as if they can't see that they're going about this in a way that is either just preaching to the choir or will create a backlash. And not all of the essays in the book were about speculating or refusing to speculate. There were some essays in the book that definitely tried to diagnose President Trump. There were some essays in the book that, in order to try to sort of comply with the Goldwater rule, refrained from a diagnosis, sort of speculated about one but didn't give one. And there were some that only talked about his behavior, like he has bullying behavior and that's bad. He's an accused sexual predator and that's bad. He shouldn't be president because of this. He has aggressive behavior. He has just talking about his behaviors and how that could be harmful to the country. And then there were a few essays about people who were therapists and how the election itself and the election of Donald Trump specifically was harming their patients in terms of causing stress and making them relive instances of abuse in their life from either having an abusive parent, an abusive partner, or an abusive boss at work. Mm -hmm. And those essays, I think, were interesting. And I think that's something to talk about. And just the idea that you don't have to leave your politics at the door when you walk into therapy, I think, is probably a novel concept for some just members of the public, I would suppose, and maybe some therapists. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, this last essay was about these psychologists that were trying to stop Trump from being inaugurated. And we, we talked about this a little bit, you know, at the end of 2016, when we talked to Amanda Marcotte about, you know, people who were trying to, at the time, get the Electoral College to vote for him. And I thought that that was ridiculous. They don't know how it works. Those electors were chosen as electors because of their loyalty to the Republican Party. There was no way, and to Trump specifically, there was no way they weren't going to vote for him. And so I don't know if that they're just naive or they're being defiant or what they were thinking, but I don't know why or how they thought that this would work. It was hard for me to read politically and practically. It didn't make any sense. And then the next thing I said is, who's this book for and what do they want those people to do? Because if it's for the general public, I think that that's good because 
a lot of people feel like they're being gaslighted by the president and by the government and by reality. They feel like, does anybody see what I see? Do we realize that there is a madman in charge? And affirming, like, yes, yes, even professionals can see what you're seeing and you're not crazy. I mean, to use derogatory terms, I suppose, but right. to affirm what this, you know, to validate people's perspectives and right. perceptions about what's happening. I think that the book is good in that way, but I don't think it's written in an alarmist way because I think that they're correct. But I think that they're sounding an alarm to a group of people who are already alarmed and who can't do anything when they hear that alarm. So I guess, Karen, if do you want to talk about, I guess, ethically, why is it a good thing that we have the Goldwater rule? So there are a number of kind of potential ethical reasons. My lens is through the American Psychological Association's ethical guidelines. So I can talk more from the institutional ethics professionally rather than my personal ethics. And if I am talking that way... I'd like to hear both. Okay. So let me start with my personal ethics then, because I mm -hmm. think that's more interesting. <laughs> Generally, I resoundingly agree with your statements on this and your perspective on this. I do think it's a really good conversation to have about everyone I know who provides therapy has talked about how this election has affected their patients. And of course, I'm in a New York bubble where patients are more liberal, more likely to represent a minoritized identity, all of which have been feeling threatened by Trump's rhetoric. And I think it's good to keep in mind that if somebody is vulnerable, this presidency will affect them more, but not solely because of policies enacted, but to see such a dismissive person, somebody who speaks openly about their prejudices and their descriptions of sexual assault, whether or not they were committed. Trump was on tape describing sexual assault. Almost every essay in the book talked about it. Right. And so regardless of whatever policy gets enacted, to see that man win the largest popularity contest in the country is highly disturbing to people who've experienced the marginalized end of that stick, you know? Mm-hmm. And that is a feature and not a bug to those who want to see Trump in power. I think there's a lot of rhetoric online both ways about how sensitive everybody is and how it's a good thing that somebody's upset because we're all trolls now in the internet age. But, you know, the rhetoric of liberal tears and whatnot and snowflakes and this kind of stuff. There's a part of me that's kind of concerned about even having this conversation in a public arena because I don't think it appeals to the empathy of people who support Donald Trump or who wouldn't normally care about the kind of offensive things that he says. The book did touch on those people also. A few of the essays were about either the psychology of crowds and groupthink and the rallies mm -hmm. and trying to be Hannah Arendt, I suppose, like explaining how, you know, Nazis and fascism rose in Europe and comparing that to Trump being elected. And there were also writers in the book who talked about comparing it, yeah, obviously to other bad movements and stuff like that. But, and then there were also some writers who talked about how people who voted for Trump felt very disempowered and it was a way for them to empower themselves. And that part was hard for me that it was in the same book for two reasons. One, those people are not going to read this book. 
two, the people who are going to read this book have read 500,000 hot takes about the white working class voters who voted for Trump. And nobody needs to read that in in a book about why the president is going to kill us all in a nuclear fireball. But I guess going on the nuclear fireball, Karen, this is something I told you I was going to ask you about. Mm. Why does, I guess, the ethical and the moral case for the Goldwater rule outweigh the risk of nuclear war, which is the number one reason why people would justify why they were breaking this book. However, I just also wanted to add something I wanted to say earlier. Well, two things. The woman's name, I'm sorry, it's Bandy Lee, not Brandy Lee. And second, some of the people who wrote for the book were not psychologists or psychiatrists. Some of them were social workers, and then some of them weren't in that field at all. There was a few journalists and lawyers. And also, Noam Chomsky's a linguist, right? Yeah, a psycholinguist. Okay. So anyway, a variety of people wrote in this book. Also, there's a rich history of linguist and neuropsychology. Before there were neuropsychology yeah. programs, most people who would be considered neuropsychologists now got their PhDs in linguistics. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's my question, Karen. Why are the ethics of the Goldwater rule more important than a nuclear war? You're smiling because you know what I'm going to say. That is a false dichotomy that you are presenting me with. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Exactly. Yes. Um, But I do think it gets to the heart of objections to the Goldwater rule, that there is such an overwhelming desire to protect the American public, people abroad, from the wrath of somebody who appears unstable and appears to have traits that could fall under certain personality disorders, I think. I'm not sure if anyone's tried to diagnose him with a different kind of mental illness. There were several in the book. Yeah, we can talk about that. But anyway, (laughs) I think that it is a false dichotomy in that I don't think that diagnosing Donald Trump to the media or otherwise by a plethora, a hodgepodge of -hmm. psychiatrists and psychologists and other mental health professionals will prevent a nuclear war. Um, I don't believe that prior use of nuclear weapons has been tied to leadership with mental illness. So I don't know if there's an evidence base for that assertion. I think the evidence would be that certain of the things that they would diagnose him with, people speculated that he may have a narcissistic personality disorder, that he might be bipolar, that he might be a sociopath, or that he might have some form of dementia. Those are the most popular ones, but there are probably others in there too. That most of those had two things in common, which would be impulsive behavior Mm -hmm. and not a healthy relationship with the truth or with reality. Right. And that someone who had those three characteristics might be more likely to launch a nuclear weapon or to do any, like... Commit any sort of aggression. Yes, that he was aggressive. Yeah. Yeah, I think one thing that's really interesting to me is why did they publish this book saying that psychiatrists and psychologists have a better grasp on what exactly is wrong with Donald Trump that will make him commit some sort of mass crime and then not be able to reach consensus on a diagnosis. I think specifically one of the purposes of the Goldwater Rule or one of the defenses of the Goldwater Rule is that it to do such a public diagnosis of somebody with whom you have not run any sort of assessment, there's not a good evidence base that that would lead to a quality diagnosis 
and that to do so would trivialize the profession. I think there's a good number of people in the United States who feel that psychology and psychiatry are kind of a doctor sitting in judgment of you based on their personal beliefs. And I don't see how this opportunity would dissuade people from that opinion. And I think it would reinforce this sense that psychiatrists are really just like, well, this guy is an asshole, so let's give him a diagnosis and lock him up. Which I don't personally believe is what psychology or psychiatry ought to be about. And so I think it's really concerning that this book that was written specifically with the goal of providing the basis of the utility of diagnosing Donald Trump kind of fails in that regard. I agree. It's like the underpants gnomes of psychology. Right. <laughs> Step one, diagnose Donald Trump. Step two, write a book about it. Step three, question mark. Step four, he's not in office anymore. You know, they talk about right. the 25th Amendment, but there are several essays that specifically explain how it's a political process mm -hmm. and not just something a bunch of doctors can do. It doesn't make sense. And then I think there's a paradox of how this book does or doesn't impact the stigma of mental health issues. They go around in circles, you know, and I think you were talking about how the Goldwater rules can decrease mental health stigma because you can't just go around flinging diagnoses at people that are in public life. It almost seems like an ad hominem attack, like Donald Trump's a narcissist, therefore he shouldn't be president without explaining why or explaining that anybody, it's disparaging to anybody with a personality disorder to say that regardless of circumstances. And the book goes back and forth because many of the essays, I think at least three of them, talk about reviews that were done of past presidents and said, well, Lincoln was probably depressed. So we're not saying all people with mental health issues shouldn't be president. Just this one. Sorry, the dog got a hold of the cat toy. You were saying that psychohistory is kind of dubious anyway? Well, psychohistory is an inherently an untestable hypothesis. You really only have secondary sources and very limited information. And so much in the same way as people who want to diagnose Donald Trump will only work from curated resources, so psychohistory goes. Both lack a clinical assessment. And so, yeah, I think it's a really important point to bring up mental health stigma because effectively, I think you're absolutely right that effectively the purpose of this book seems to be, and many of the objections to the Goldwater Rule seem to be, we should be able to say what we see because this man is unfit for the presidency. I can't see a way in which that would destigmatize mental illness. That really would only serve to further stigmatize people with either the same diagnosis as you're projecting onto Donald Trump or diagnosing Donald Trump with. I think psychohistorically, even if we were to take psychohistory as a precedent, many presidents who served well or had favorable historical kind of context for their presidencies could be similarly diagnosed with narcissism. Narcissism is highly common amongst politicians. Um, narcissistic traits, I'm not saying narcissistic personality disorder, but narcissism is highly common amongst politicians. I think it's inherent in a person who is saying, I will serve as your representative, please give me power. You know, mm -hmm. you need to have some sort of inherent belief that you can wield that power and that you're deserving of that power in order to ask other people to do so. And so there is also something to be said to distinguish between healthy narcissism and unhealthy narcissism. And I think much of the conversation that we've had around this has really focused on unhealthy narcissism. 
in a way that I imagine people might struggle. I think a lot of this conversation is focused on unhealthy aspects of narcissism. However, I'm concerned that people who are tend who are prone to doubt themselves may see this as, oh, if I do like myself, am I displaying narcissism? If I think I'm really great at something, if I do, you know, if I build the best walls, am I really just the person with a disorder for believing that about myself? So I see this push to medicalize what's wrong with Donald Trump is potentially harmful to people with mental health disorders or people who are kind of prone to taking in that kind of messaging that there's something wrong with them. Yes. And there was one of the essays that said it's not just the narcissistic personality disorder. It's that he has bad intent and the combination of the two will lead to the end of the world. So that's why it's okay to break the Goldwater rule. I rolled my eyes for those who can't see me, which is all of you. (laughs) I just wanted to point out something, and I don't think it's a justification, but I think it's an explanation. The reason that the mental health professionals in this book don't necessarily agree on a diagnosis was the way that it was written. And the way that it was written was after the inauguration, there was a conference in April of 2017 called the Duty to Warn Conference, and it was at Yale Medical School. And out of that conference, they decided to write a book. And so many of the people who were there and many of the people who have participated electronically or found out about it later wanted to submit papers. So they did. And then I believe it was done extremely quickly. It wasn't done. The people at the conference didn't work together on this book. They all submitted whatever they thought should be in it. And some of the pieces had been published before the election, some after and some after the conference. So they all submitted their work and and it was done, I believe, by October on the bookshelves. So it was a very fast process. And it was just people who have similar opinions, you know, write what you think would be good for this book. It wasn't necessarily a group of people trying to come to a consensus and explain why that the country needed to hear that. So Karen, I have a question for you just to play, not necessarily to play devil's advocate, but a, a point that was raised in the book that I think we discussed, but I think you have a good answer for, which is, Since there are lots of people who live in remote areas where they don't have access to mental health care, but with the advent, if they live in a place where there's no psychologist, but there is fast internet, they can Skype with a therapist. They can get telemedicine. They can use some kind of video chat to talk to a psychologist and get help. If people can do that, why can't a psychologist diagnose Trump from his press conferences and TV debates? And Twitter. I mean, you can get therapy through text messages. Telepsychology, telepsychiatry, telemental health are traditional mental health practices mediated by a video component. So while I think there's the development of kind of computer-mediated therapy, which would have asynchronous video, which would mean you record yourself kind of like a voicemail and then your therapist responds to kind of like a voicemail. That's not what is commonly meant by telemedicine. So what is commonly meant is synchronous video, like a Skype call, like a FaceTime call, a synchronous video call. And so that is a more traditional form of psychology, I think overwhelmingly, but I'm not an expert on that. And I don't know what people do in their own practices, but I know for psychologists and psychiatrists, it's legally thorny in that If you're within the same state, you're fine. If it's across states, you're not. Sometimes within a state, it's state by state, legality-wise. And Mm -hmm. so it's kind of messy right now. 
because there's not federal law about tel telemedicine and most insurance is state-based. So there's that primary issue, but even in telemedicine, what you're doing is not watching videos of someone in their daily life and then providing a diagnosis. You are having either a clinical assessment, a clinical interview. It's interactive. It's interactive. It's also, you're asking diagnostic questions to the person and they're providing you with answers to the best of their ability. And so it's still traditional in that sense. It's, it's still based in the same evidence base of all other diagnostics in terms of traditional clinical practices. So it's still a very different thing. Donald Trump is not any of these psychiatrists or psychologists' patient, and none of them has performed a clinical assessment that we know of. And if they had, that assessment and its results would be protected by HIPAA with the exception of a credible immediate threat of harm to oneself or others, which is supposedly the justification. So I assume that if any of these clinicians had interviewed Donald Trump, they would gladly say so. Yes, I do. I don't want to make it sound like I'm just disparaging psychology at all. I have great respect for psychology. The practice of it is medicine and is science. Yeah, I absolutely agree with your assessment. I think, again, from a personal ethics standpoint, the utility of it is limited. And I think also it would be worthwhile to read the statute under which a president could be removed from office, which is the 25th Amendment, which states whenever the vice president and a majority of either the principal officers of the executive departments or of such other body as Congress may by law provide transmit to the president pro tempore of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives their written declaration that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, the vice president shall immediately assume the powers and duties of the office's acting president. And that's uh, a snippet of section four. That's not the full amendment, but none of that says mentally unfit. And again, it is a political process, not a medical process. So I think it's worthwhile to note that the people who would have to be convinced of this would be the vice president and Congress, not the American public. And so again, when you ask, who is this book for? I do think if I be an armchair psychologist of the people providing diagnoses and the people who are interested in this book, there is a feeling of powerlessness and helplessness that I think a lot of Americans feel right now to see somebody who is so callous and so openly prejudiced in their statements and actions, running the country and lording their power over us. There must be something I can do, is kind of this response. What can I do? What, what skills do I have that I can provide to stop this? You know, I think you're right in that a lot of people want their perceptions validated that this person seems uncommonly narcissistic, rigidly narcissistic, you know, in the ways that a personality disorder would present itself, you know, really uncommon in their own culture and really persistently, historically. And aggressive. And aggressive. And right. abusive. Right. And to have these traits for a long period of time on the record. You know, I'm torn because so many people I talk to about this are like, you know, we probably shouldn't do this, like diagnose people without interviewing them. But in this one case, it is so apparent and obvious and flagrant that we must be able to, like, 
it's kind of like, yeah, this rule makes sense, except for Trump. <laughs> you know, when you talk to psychologists or when I talk to people in the mental health profession, like, yeah, I think it would be really hard to do something like this, except with Trump, where it's so transparently obvious. And I think that's a fair discussion to have amongst yourselves. Most people's fear, I think when I talk to people at parties and say that I'm studying psychology, you know, you hear back like, well, it used to be that you hear back, okay, are you shrinking me right now? Are you psychoanalyzing me right now? Are you judging me right now? Do you know I have this disorder? <laughs> you know? Or can you tell me what's wrong with me? Yeah. My mom is clearly a narcissist, you know? And you get all these kinds of responses. And I think there's some truth to that. I mean, when you are oriented in this way and trained in this way, you kind of can apply jargon to certain behaviors because you're interacting with people and everyone has behaviors, you know? But I mean, the Goldwater rule doesn't say a bunch of psychologists who are, for example, drinking in a bar or just hanging right. out at the beach can't say, you know, well, you Trump's a narcissist. A right. They, they can't go to the press and then say that or put it on their blog that there's a difference between people speculating in the privacy of their own homes or conversations mm -hmm versus having public official statements on the record. Right. And again, there's, I think forensic psychology, my, and which is not my area of expertise, but I think forensic psychology has all kinds of thorny ethical issues, all kinds of things that go on that are really confusing ethically. You can provide an assessment against someone's will. You can violate HIPAA under oath when asked directly if it's relevant to somebody's criminal behavior. Even with these ethical issues, there are standard practices in this field. I'm aware that none of those standard practices involve public statements about an individual's mental health. And so right. I think one of the objections to the Goldwater Rule is people feel their hands are tied by their professional organizations, that they have this ability to diagnose this person and that they can't do anything about it because they are ethically prohibited from doing so. And I think they're not ethically prohibited from doing so, but there is an ethical way to practice that behavior, which is if you are called as an expert by Congress or the vice president in an attempt to remove the president from office, you can provide your testimony as an expert. Mm -hmm. However, I don't think writing a book about it for the American public is in line with that goal. Right. And I think it's not just that people feel powerless. It, there's a feeling of surreality. And that's, I think, almost more uncomfortable, at least for me personally, than feeling powerless. Because not to be too, I guess, blasé about it, but I'm no more powerless now than I was after Obama was elected, for example. Right. You know, I'm still a private citizen, as are we all, who are reading this book or writing this book, and who are not, you know, members of Congress or the vice president. And I think that's difficult for a lot of people. And that might be one of the only uses of this book to kind of be a reality check. Yeah, I think there is something very surreal about this experience, especially, you know, when you consider the popular vote, it just seems like this was never meant to be. <laughs> and here it is. And how do we cope? But I don't think that this is a good way of coping. Right. And, you know, I have been trying to less social media and read more books and long form articles. And all of a sudden now with this book and 
I read Donna Brazil's book and I have Katie Turr's book and what happened by Hillary Clinton. And somehow I convinced myself that in the sake of free speech, I had to download Michael Wolff's book. Now all my books are about <laughs> Trump. Right. So that strategy did not work. Yeah, I think there's a big struggle for meaning making in all mm -hmm. this. What is the lesson, you know? And I think there are all kinds of answers to that question. And I don't think there's a one size fits all one. And so again, more armchair psychology, are these psychologists and psychiatrists like this is the way I make sense of human behavior is using the kind of diagnostic way of approaching it, this clinical perspective on it. Yeah, I think that this is one way that people can make sense of things. Clearly something's wrong with the guy. What is it, <laughs> you know? So I think in that respect, it's good. Another topic that I think we kind of really both have talked about a lot in our private conversation is the United States government. Uh, is the president elected by an electoral college that is based on voters' decisions? Or do we have a shadow government run by psychiatrists and psychologists who take people <laughs> into and out of office based on their clinical opinion? You know, I think- Do you sound like Glenn Greenwald? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't take Only that as thinks... a compliment, but I don't know if I should. I'm, I'm just using you. No, he, he <laughs> said the same thing to Amy Goodman last week about the Russia investigation, talking about the deep state or something. Like, should the deep state be able to investigate the president? I'm like, well, yeah, anyone should be able to investigate the president. But I don't know. Maybe there's a line there that should not be crossed. I don't, I don't know what it is. Is there an investigative body that should be allowed to investigate whether public officials have violated the law? <laughs> I mean, this is the thing. Of course. I think investigative bodies investigating crimes is not professionally at odds with itself. Correct. And like you said, if this book came out because, you know, Mike Pence said, hey, psychologist, tell me what you think. I'm called for comment. And we were reading it in the Federal Register. Deeply different. Right. I agree. So kind of from a professional ethics standpoint... More from the enforceable section, obviously, this is clearly in violation of the Goldwater Rule for Psychiatrists, the Corollary 9.01 from the American Psychological Association's Ethical Standards to diagnose somebody without a clinical interview. But furthermore, there are other enforceable ethics that can be applied. So... Ethical Standard 2.01 describes the boundaries of practitioners' competence. Practitioners who don't have competency in the disorder that they're trying to diagnose Donald Trump with should not be making diagnoses of Donald Trump, specifically without the training to do so. Is anyone competent at making a diagnosis at a distance like this? That's a good question. Again, the impulse to diagnose is very easy with this particular clinical presentation. <laughs> <laughs> However, I don't know that there is an empirical base for it. So another one might be some of the ones in regards to privacy for diagnosis. So let's say Dr. Phil. No, this wouldn't work for Dr. Phil because I don't believe he's an APA member. This is actually probably a good point for me to clarify the I think you were trying to look that difference. up the other day, right? I was. This is one of my idiosyncratic professional Googles. <laughs> So Dr. Phil does have a doctorate in psychology, mm -hmm. but is he an APA member? Unclear. If anyone who's listening knows, please let me know. I know that 
the APA membership directory has been down for a little while online. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyway, let's say an APA it- member has a patient who's a celebrity, and that celebrity is in the news for erratic behavior. If you feel the Goldwater rule is inappropriate, would it make sense for that psychologist to go on TMZ and discuss aspects of that patient's diagnosis? Well, then it would violate their privacy. It would. Even if their erratic behavior seems to be potentially harmful to themselves or others. But TMZ is not the right place to go for that. Exactly. And so, again, this book was not released on TMZ Press, but I think... Could have been. The sensational aspects of it, the smell of ethical violation. (laughs) So I have a question for you then, Mm -hmm. Karen. What would you say to people who, I'm looking right now on Goodreads, it has an average 4.15 out of 5 stars. So people generally seem to like it, the ones who've read it. What would you say to the people who really liked it? 44% of people gave it 5 stars and 34% of people gave it 4 stars. So... 78% either gave it four or five stars. What would you say to those people who feel like it was validating to them or informative to them in some way or enlightening? I would say that I'm glad that they found something that was validating or enlightening to them. (laughs) I don't think the responsibility falls on the general public for receiving it. I think the the responsibility for uh, falls on the professionals providing it. So for those who enjoy it, I would like you all to continue enjoying it. And I have no desire to invalidate your experience of it. Very smart. (laughs) Is there anything else you want to say that you think people should know about the Goldwater rule? Yeah, I think there's a bit more to say about it. So the rule itself or the ethical discussion around the rule? Let me clarify that. Either. Either? Either. Anything. Yeah. Anything the average person should know. The question of whether or not you feel personally that Donald Trump is fit for office has very little to do with his mental health. I think the behaviors being described as narcissistic or sociopathic or bipolar or schizophrenic or whatever anyone is kind of applying to it based on their clinical opinion, they're not necessary to see what you see, basically. If you don't want to vote for the guy, you don't have to not vote for the guy because he's this you know, quote unquote nuts, you know, you really just simply have to feel like this person is not who you want in office. And I think you can observe those behaviors well on your own. If I were speaking directly to somebody who is curious about this. So I don't think that psychologists and psychiatrists, yes, we've received special training to diagnose illness in kind of conceptualizations of wellness and strengths, but I don't think it's necessary. I don't know that it's sufficient. So considering the evidence base for the diagnosis is, I don't think the evidence base is necessarily sufficient. So I think that that's a large one. I also want to say that, yeah, again, bringing up the political utility part in another lens of how I believe that it is not politically useful is the voter base for Donald Trump has been studied in excruciating detail as anyone who's read all of these ethnographies of Trump voters in rural white America the people who are voting for Trump tend to be most likely to be resentful of, quote, highly educated members of the American upper middle class. And the people who fall into this description are psychiatrists and psychologists and most likely all other mental health professionals, authoritative figures. I don't necessarily think 
that this will change anybody's mind. I think this will primarily reinforce people's beliefs who were never going to vote for Trump anyway. And so I worry about the lack of impact that this will have as a book. It might make good talking points for people who want to confront their relatives, which I think this podcast is always pro-difficult conversations with people who disagree with you. However, I don't necessarily think that it will convince people who disagree, especially when there's like 30 diagnoses in the book. (laughs) I agree with you. Just on a side note, I guess on the good news column, maybe I had a good conversation with a Trump relative on Christmas. That is fascinating. I told Karen about this before, but my mom had a no politics rule, which I was trying to abide by. But something happened and we were talking about books we had read and we started talking about, oh, we were talking about television shows actually first. And my aunt was talking about how she likes to watch true crime shows. And that led us to talking about the Kennedy assassination and various theories And she said, it's hard to convince me that Oswald acted alone. And then my brother said, it's hard to convince me that he didn't. And then we started talking about, I think, the Lincoln assassination. And then somehow we were kind of generically talking about history, which is very close to politics. And I was, you know, skirting around the subject. And then eventually this relative who is a Trump voter and also Jewish told me, you know what, Elizabeth, the liberals are right about one thing. And I said, what's that? And he said, people should err on the side of saying happy holidays because I've had one too many people wish me a Merry Christmas in a sarcastic way that I know they meant to be anti-Semitic. And I'm sick of it. And I was like, wow, well, that's a breakthrough because... Many years ago, during a time when Joe Lieberman was still relevant to the national political conversation, I had asked this person, how can you be a Republican? You know, don't you think Republicans are anti-Semitic? And this relative said, well, America is a Christian nation. So in a matter of about 15 to 18 years, this person went from America is a Christian nation to we should all I'm sick of the anti-Semitism. We all need to start saying happy holidays. So I'm proud of this person. (laughs) And then I kind of made like a lighthearted comment. Well, you know, you're a conservative who thinks we should say happy holidays. And this person over here is a liberal who likes guns. And then they both started to convince me why I should go shooting with them. So that was a fail. But progress. I have two been lured with, but it's so fun. (laughs) I feel like it would be fun to try it. I don't know. I mean, target shooting is still legal in New York State, so go ahead. I don't. Yeah. I, I'm not going to do it, but you go ahead. Well, this is outside of New York State that I was told. I think that my day of target shooting is coming, though. <laughs> well, you we'll can tell out. us how it went. That would be an interesting show. Guys, tweet at us if you want to hear have us like record our target shooting. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me online at Miss Cherry Pie on Twitter. And you can find me online at uh, Karen, U-H-K-A-R-E-N, on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And again, feel free to write the show and find us on Patreon. 
Yes, we're on Patreon, and we hope that you pledge and support the show. We are employing an editor who's editing our podcast, and if we raise enough money from Patreon, we're going to also hire a graphic designer to make us a new logo and website. So that's what the money's going for right now, and also hosting costs of the show. And if you don't have any money to support us on Patreon, please review us on iTunes or Stitcher, because we're on Stitcher now. Mm -hmm. So that would be much appreciated yeah and good reviews get more listeners and maybe your review will recruit the listener who can give us five dollars a month (laughs) that would be great so thank you so much for listening we have a great episode coming up for you in february Mm -hmm. and we know that last year we promised you 12 episodes we're going to make the same promise this year and hopefully this year we can keep it i think we can all right happy 2018 everyone enjoy Political Flavors Feminist Coffee Hour podcast theme song is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth. You can listen to her music at soundcloud.com slash Bridget Ellsworth. And you can listen to her other songs there as well. And if you like what you hear, you can give her a like or even a follow. <laughs>